Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 32, verses 7 through 14. So if you are willing and able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Exodus chapter 32, verses 7 through 14. And the Lord said to Moses, go down. For your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised, I will give, up, give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of, bringing on his people. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. There are a lot of amazing things when it comes to prayer. A lot of things that we could talk about that we enjoy when it comes to prayer, but perhaps one of the most amazing things is that God loves to hear his people pray. Think about just how stunning and astounding the privilege of prayer is. The Lord of the universe, of infinite wisdom, infinite justice, infinite goodness, is telling us finite, fallible, sinful creatures to ask him to do the things that we think would be good for his glory and good for other people. Prayer is amazing. I'm always baffled by it, and I love prayer. But the truth that drives the mystery of prayer into deep waters is to know how much God loves when his people do it. And the Psalms testify that God loves it when his people pray. Jesus himself taught us to ask, seek, and knock. He entreats us to pray. He teaches us the parable of the persistent widow 
and how God is a righteous judge and that we should never lose heart and keep on praying. It would be amazing enough if God begrudgingly says, I want to hear your prayers. He does more than that. He positively invites us to pray and encourages us to pray. You know, parents in the room, you understand the joy that you have when, you're ask, when your children ask you for something that they need. Now, I'm talking about real needs here, not asking and complaining, asking and secretly really it's just begging, asking and really it's just whining, but really asking for help. You know, when, you're, when your son or your daughter comes up to you and says, Daddy, can you, can you help me shoot a basketball? Or, Daddy, can you, can you teach me or help me with my math? And I usually say no because I'm not good at either math or basketball. I'm waiting for the day when they finally ask me, can you help me understand this passage of Scripture? Now think about how joyful it is for a parent to hear their children say that. And think about how much even more joyful as a parent when your child comes and asks you something, asks you to help somebody else. I mean, can you imagine if a son or daughter comes to you and asks, Mom, Dad, can you help like, my, my, little, my little sister, my little brother? <laughs> not, not I'm tattling on them, not I want you to arbitrate in a fight between, between us, but Dad, can you help her with this? She's having a hard time. At that moment, you hear that, and you feel like you've reached the pinnacle of parenting. Now think about how much more God must love it when we pray for each other. God loves to hear us pray for things we really need and imagine how much he loves it when we pray for others and intercede for others. Now the passage before us in Exodus that we just read is about many things. It is about the character of God, it is certainly about the sinfulness of sin and that it deserves judgment, but even more centrally as we look at this passage, it is about the power and privilege of intercessory prayer, to intercede, to pray for others, something that we all do and something that we wish we would be even better at. And so the question before us this morning is, do you pray? Now, I'm not asking if you're ever led in prayer. I'm not asking if you pray before bedtime. My question is, do you pray for others? Now, before we get to Moses' prayer, which is really focused in verses 11 through 14, let's look at the situation that the Israelites are in, the situation that brings about Moses' prayer. Now, you'll remember that Moses is at Mount Sinai, and he is hearing from God and given instructions from God about how Israel is to worship. But down below, the people have grown impatient. They said, oh, Moses, he's been up there for, for so long. And they begin offering ungodly worship to an unholy cow. And God saw how the people were sinning, as he always does, and we see in verse 7 that the Lord said to Moses, 
go down. Go down, Moses. And God, in verse 7 and 8, levels an indictment upon Israel. He says they've corrupted themselves, doesn't it? He says they've corrupted themselves. They turned aside quickly from God's commandments, the Ten Commandments which they know about and assented to. They made a golden calf. They've worshipped it. They sacrificed to it. They've said, these are your gods, O Israel. Now, notice in verse 9 of our passage, it repeats the phrase, and the Lord said to Moses. Isn't that curious if you're looking at our passage this morning? I mean, it, it's the same phrase from verse 7, and the Lord said to Moses. Why does verse 7 and verse 9 say the exact same phrase, but nothing happens in between? I was reading it this past week, and I was like, this is such a curious added statement. Is the Lord redundant? Did Moses forget what he wrote? I, we can't be sure about this, but perhaps the absence of any response from Moses is deliberate. Perhaps this repetition is indicating that Moses didn't know how to respond because he couldn't imagine that Israel had so quickly abandoned the Lord and gone into sin. He's dumbfounded, speechless at their sin. And so the Lord says to Moses again, Notice how God refers to Israel in verse 7. He says, Israel is, he tells Moses, is your people whom you brought up out of Egypt. I don't think God is being snarky or throwing himself a pity party here. What he's saying is that these people have abandoned me. They've fashioned for themselves an idol that cannot possibly take care of them. An idol that can't speak, doesn't listen, doesn't see. They've wanted that, and they don't want me. So God says, Moses, they are your people. And then God threatens judgment. These sins deserve to be punished, and God in the past has called them a treasured possession. Now he gives them a new name, doesn't he? Do you see that there? He says, I've seen this people in verse 9. He calls them a stiff-necked people. Now, the phrase stiff-necked describes a beast of burden that is too stubborn to wear the yoke of its master to do what its master says. This is the first time the phrase is used in the book of Exodus, and it will be a continued way in which God will describe the people of Israel. What kind of people are they? They're stiff-necked people who refuse to lower their head in humility out of obedience to God. This is a dangerous position for anyone to be in. Because what are stiff-necked people like? Stiff-necked people always think they're right and that they're never wrong. They refuse to listen to good spiritual counsel. They hear maybe counsel from one person and then they move on to the next person and the next person, hoping and desiring that they will get the answer that they want. They say, I'm sorry, that's just the way I am, and they expect everyone else to deal with it. They ask for advice, but they don't follow it. They go ahead and do what they were planning to do anyways, and when they get into trouble, they are unwilling to be corrected. They never change. They never grow. And the worst part about it is that they don't even realize 
what they're doing. I hope that none of us in this room are stiff-necked people. And yet I know that's not true. Some of you are stiff-necked. And we can ask ourselves, when was the last time we changed our minds? Well, these Israelites are in a terrible predicament. God's judgment is going to fall upon these stiff-necked people. And God says to Moses, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, that I may consume them. But it doesn't happen. We know how the story goes. We know that in, in chapter 35, Israel starts building the tabernacle. So what happens? Why, are, why is Israel not consumed? Why are they not destroyed? Because Moses prayed. Because Moses interceded on behalf of Israel. So let's look this morning at two features of Moses' prayer. Two features of Moses' prayer. First, how, first, why Moses interceded, and second, how Moses interceded. So let's take a look at the first. Why did Moses intercede? Two answers. First, because he cared for others. He cared for others. Now, many people look at Moses' prayer and rightly point out that Moses is concerned with the glory of God, and that is very true. He is concerned with the glory of God. But you see, too, that he is burdened for other people. He's burdened for others. He cared about them. He didn't want them to be destroyed. God says in verse 10, my judgment is going to fall upon them, and I will make a great nation from you, Moses. A great nation out of you, Moses. God says, I'm going to press the reset button and start all over with a whole new set of people, and I'm going to start with you. Now, that might sound like a tempting offer to some of us. I mean, I can imagine it. God says, I'm just going to start all over with you, Steve. <laughs> and everyone else after that, they'll be called Chenites. You know, that'd be great. But Moses doesn't give a hint that he's tempted at all at God's offer. In fact, he seems to even ignore God's offer, doesn't he? Even after all their ungodliness and all the grief the people had caused Moses, Moses still loves the people of God. He doesn't think of himself. Rather, he intercedes. And that's a big part of learning to pray for others, is learning to care for others. Praying for others is one of the surest ways that you prove that you love your neighbor as yourself. And one of the surest ways to find yourself in prayer for others is to feel another person's burden, to feel the pain or fear or hardship that the other person is going through. So I do think we need to be moved to compassion for others. And it's not to say that we need to take on every burden of everyone that we run across, uh, that we run across. But we need to learn to care for others. Now, there are some people that you'll instinctively pray for. Uh, you can't help it. You know, parents, it's like when they go on a date, a husband and wife, they go on a date, what, what's the thing that they instinctively talk about? Their kids. They just can't help it. 
Parents can't help but pray for their children. It's just instinctive. They don't need any discipline to pray for family members. And some of us are like that. We understand that there are certain people that we instinctively pray for. And yet there are some other people that we need to put on a list. I don't think that's unspiritual. And Redeemer Bible Fellowship, every year you are given a church directory. You're not given a church directory to see what you look like in there. You look the same every time. It's so that you can be in prayer for people of our church. It's so that you can take time to look at a few members at a time and say, I don't know them. I will invite them over to my home, and I will talk to them, get to know them, see their burdens, and pray for them. Maybe pray that night over dinner so that you don't just say, oh, I'm going to pray for you, and never do it. Because praying is caring. And if you aren't praying for anyone else in your life, you have to wonder if you care for anybody at all. Moses was burdened for Israel, so he interceded. And second, Moses interceded because he believed prayer can change things. Now, notice how I phrased that. Prayer can change things, but I didn't say that prayer changes God. A mistake in encountering our passage this morning is to walk away with the idea that somehow Moses changes who God is, that somehow God is angry, he's flying off the handle, and Moses is more compassionate than God. And Moses needed to change God's mind. No, God is immutable. That means he does not change. God's concern and care does not come and go. It does not rise and it does not fall. God cannot be made more compassionate towards sinners or more opposed to sin than he is from all eternity. It is God's nature to love. It is God's nature to detest sin. So what is going on in this exchange between God and Moses? Well, there's good reason to believe that God wanted, expected, and in fact was inviting Moses to intercede on behalf of the people. If you read through the passage quickly, you might think, oh, no, you know, Israel really dodged the bullet there. You know, God was fuming, and Moses appeased him. But that's not what's happening. God was pulling and inviting Moses to pray. How do we know that? Well, there are some hints to God's grace here. In verse 7, God commands Moses to go down. Go down, Moses. If he really intended to destroy Israel, why send Moses down at all? The answer is that he was planning to save them through Moses' intercession as mediator. He was really sending Moses down to pray. What's more, God says, now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn against them. Now that sounds as if God can't control his temper. Let me alone. Let me at him. But does God really need Moses' permission? Is he so weak that he could not exact justice upon Israel immediately? No. God says this, that Moses might pray. He is leaving the door open for intercession. But we have a question here, and it's how does prayer change things? 
If God is sovereign, why pray at all? Just a few verses later in chapter 33, verse 19, God says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So it's true. God is sovereign. We don't inform God in our prayers. God doesn't say, hmm, you know, Stephen Chen just gave me a really good suggestion there. I never thought about that prayer request before. Let me change my plan. In addition, God's arm can't be twisted behind his back as if we just have the right incantations, enough prayer, enough groveling, enough pleading that God will change his mind. No, God is a righteous judge and always does what is right, so why pray? So why pray? Well, clearly there's a sense in which God never changes his mind, and there's another sense in which we can say God's course of action as we perceive it, has now moved from one direction to another through the providential ordering of a prayer. What's that mean? In other words, we're saying we pray because God has ordained that prayers would accomplish his ends. God says you must pray. John 15, 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. James 4, 2, it says, you do not have because you do not ask. And so we must pray. And God has so arranged things so that he gives grace to those who petition him for grace. It's not that God needs the prayer for him to do what he wants to do. But oftentimes he chooses certain means to accomplish his ends. Like, for example, he can save your life in a car crash. But you know how he does it? He can do, he usually does it with a seatbelt, traffic laws, airbags. He doesn't need the rain to grow the crops or the sun to warm them or the flower to plow the field, but that's what he usually does. In the same way, God ordains prayer to do his sovereign work. That's why the commentary of this in Psalm 106, it says that God's chosen one, Moses, stood in the breach before him, interceding to turn away his wrath from destroying them. And I think that is absolutely astonishing. The all-knowing, all-foreseeing, all-planning, all-governing God wills for your Christ-exalting prayers to be the occasion of his action. And so, Redeemer, we must be men and women, boys and girls in prayer. Yes, as a church, we have a high view of God, and we make no apologies for it. But this might mean that we don't pray as much as we ought. We need to be reminded that our sovereign God does not intend to complete his saving purposes in the world without our prayers. He will complete his purposes and he will do it by your prayers. It is, this is why in everything by prayer and supplication we make our requests known to him. Moses interceded because he cared for people and he believed prayer might change things. Now let's move on to see how Moses 
interceded. How does Moses intercede? How does he pray? How does he persuade? Notice that Moses doesn't try to minimize Israel's sin. Moses doesn't go to God and say, Moses, uh, they've been trying really, really hard. It's been a tough time. It's been 40 days down there. It's scary, and I just, you know, give them a break. Don't make a mountain, a mountain out of molehills. He doesn't minimize their sin at all. He assumes that God's judgment upon them is absolutely correct. So how does Moses intercede? Moses made his case by presenting three compelling reasons for God to show mercy. First, Moses appeals to God's fatherly affection. Moses appeals to God's fatherly affection. When Moses petitions God, he doesn't talk about how much better the Israelites will uh, feel if, if the Israelites aren't punished, how much better he will feel when the Israelites aren't punished. His prayer isn't ultimately based on what he thinks will be nice for Israel. It's based on weightier matters. It's based on God's character and his fatherly affection. Remember in verse 7, God says to Moses, these are your people, Moses, whom you brought out of Egypt. Well, what is Moses' response? He turns that phrase back around on God, and he implores the Lord and says, oh, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt. And Moses says, these people might be rebellious idolaters, grumblers, but they're your people. You brought them out of Egypt. You redeemed them. You saved them. You delivered them. They are yours. They are, as God said to Pharaoh earlier in chapter 4, Israel is my firstborn son. And by reminding God of his election on his people. He is reminding God of his fatherly affection. They were his children, and nothing they could do would ever change that. And this is true for us as much as the Israelites. Everyone who comes to God through faith in his son is his child forever. And so when you intercede, don't intercede simply out of your love for that person, though that's good and that's important. Uh, there's nothing wrong with saying, Lord, I love them so much. I love her so much. I just want her to not have to go through all this pain that she's going through right now. Even more, when you pray for other Christians, you can say, Father in heaven, this is your adopted son or daughter. As much as I love them, you love them even more would you come to their aid because you know their needs better than I do? Second, Moses interceded based on God's honor. He asked God to save his people, not simply for their sake, but for the sake of God's good name. Remember, God saved Israel that his name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And so Moses says in verse 12, why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out? to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth. In other words, Moses is concerned with God's reputation. Moses can just imagine the Twitter X feed happening back in Egypt. He can just imagine what the headlines are saying. 
escaped slaves slaughtered by Yahweh. What will the enemy say if Israel is destroyed? They might say something like this. Oh, yeah, Yahweh, we know about him. Back in Egypt, right? We know about him. He was the one that brought the plagues and all power. He's a powerful God. And he brought those slaves out through the Red Sea. He's a redeeming God. And word on the street is that he's a providing God. He gave them manna while they were out in the wilderness. But in terms of capturing the hearts of the people, in terms of being a forgiving God, well, Yahweh is not that much after all. It was out of the zeal for God's glory that Moses begged and implored God not to destroy his people. Moses says, oh, Lord, consider the fame of your name. You know, this past week, because I've been studying this passage, I've been taking a little inventory on my intercessory prayers through the week. And I would say that 80% of my intercessory prayers uh, talks about health concerns of other people. And I'm pretty sure it's the same for you. And there's nothing wrong with bringing health concerns before the Lord. God wants us to cast all our cares upon him. James specifically tells us to pray for the sick. But so often we give little thought for how God figures into the equation. Sometimes when we're praying, we need to ask ourselves, am I even praying a Christian prayer? You don't have to be a Christian to pray that you will have no nightmares when you go to bed at night. You don't need to be a Christian to pray for protection and health and peace and prosperity and social justice and comfort and happiness. All of those things are what the world wants. You don't have to be born again to want those or love those. But Christian prayers, however, are from the Spirit. And what is the Spirit all about? The Holy Spirit is about glorifying and honoring Jesus Christ. Christian prayers long for God to be seen as glorious in every event, every act, every affection. Christian prayers have a heart that God would be exalted and that Christ would be honored. So perhaps our prayers should sound a little bit more like this. Father, for your honor... Would you save my wayward child and glorify yourself in overcoming a hardened heart? Oh, Lord, would you heal this marriage so that the world might see that forgiveness is real, that reconciliation can happen, and that Jesus' love for his church would not be sullied? Oh, God, give them health but let the healing be full and eternal. Grant that they would be given physical healing and spiritual health, even more so for their souls. And when they are healed, may they turn back and give you glory, knowing that you are the one who has healed them. So we plead with God based on his honor. Third, not only does Moses pray based on God's fatherly affection and honor, but verse 13, he intercedes based on God's covenant promises. He says, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self. Moses appeals to God based on his own covenant promises. 
He's a God who keeps his word. And failure to follow through would bring jeopardy to his purpose to make himself known to the nations. This is why it's so important for us to pray from the scriptures, to open up psalms or to point to God's promises. Because prayer is not so much about learning how to get God to give us the things we want as it is about learning to ask God for the things he's already promised us. Well, Moses finishes his prayer for Israel, and it says, the Lord relented from the disaster. Moses doesn't talk God into doing something he didn't want to do. On the contrary, he was telling God exactly what he wanted to hear. And in the end, God did what he planned to do from the beginning. He answered the prayer of the mediator that he had appointed, this mediator who interceded on behalf of the wicked. And praise God, this was not the last time a mediator interceded on behalf of the wicked. For when God saw us mired in our sins, he sent his son to intercede for our salvation. It was as if God said, Go down, Jesus, because your people, the ones I've given you from all eternity, have become corrupt. They have turned from my law to worship other gods. They are an idolatrous people, and my wrath will come upon them unless you go and intercede. And Jesus did come down, and he didn't say, look how sincere they are. Look how much they're trying. No, he didn't plead for the righteous, but interceded on behalf of the wicked. And in his high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus alludes to some of the themes that we've talked about this morning. He says, save them, Father, save my people, because they're not just mine, but also yours. Save them because I died on the cross for their sins. Save them because it will bring glory to your name. And if any of you are in Christ, it is because you have a mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, an advocate before the Lord. And as followers of Jesus, we are called to intercede for others, not just for good people that we like, but also for the wicked whom God ought to destroy. We intercede for people who don't know Jesus and for people who know Jesus but are mired in sin. We pray for our brothers and sisters, and we pray for our enemies. We do so believing that a sovereign God invites us to pray and loves it and loves to hear our prayers. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that this morning, as we have approached your word and listened to your word, heard your word expounded. We ask that it would unite our hearts together as a church to be a people of prayer. We pray that we would repent for our prayerlessness. And we ask that you would give us a heart to see others, to be compassionate for them, and to go before you Oh, Lord, a God who can do wonderful things. 
So Father, help us to be often in your word. Help us to often know your promises that you have for this world and for your people and to pray them back to you. May you glorify yourself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.